0: One of the things that we've looked at, and what I want to call this uh, message today, is when you feel like giving up. You ever been there before where you felt like giving up? I have. Uh, before I get too deep into this sermon, I want to say I'm glad to have my, uh, my granddaughters here, Avery and Grayson. Wave your hand back there. That's Matt's uh, and Megan's uh, children, and we're glad to have them. We don't get to have them down here too often with us, but we're thrilled that they're here today. Uh, but sometimes, you know, if you feel like giving up, when you feel like giving up, what do you, what do you do? You know, you, you just feel like the whole world's against you. And, uh, so I think at the end, I think it'll give you hope. I want you to remember this one thing in life. When you, they were singing that song there, uh, this one thing, one thing to, to remember is this, all who begin in Christ will finish in Christ. I want to say that again. All who begin in Christ will finish in Christ. I really believe that. Uh, 100% of those he foreknows, 100% of those he predestines, 100% of those he glorifies, no one is left behind. No one is left behind. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we pray today that you would take the word of God and apply it to our hearts. May we leave here with the greatest confidence we've ever had in our walk in the Lord, Jesus Christ. May we understand that we are never alone. We're never out. We may be knocked down, but we're not out. We're, we're still here. God's still for us. God is still in us. God is at the right hand of the Father praying for us. And we, we will make it. And God, I just pray that you take the word, take it and encourage and bring confidence to this congregation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. One of the things we look at Romans 8, Paul outlines seven assurances. Uh, One, he says, we have a new position. This is in verses 1 through 3 of Romans 8. We have a new guest talking about the Holy Spirit lives inside of us. He lives in us and, and if we, we can allow him to control us and lead us in the, in the right paths. Verses 9 through 14. We have a new adoption. We are now adopted into God's family. Jesus is our elder brother. God is our father. We've been in this new adoption and with this adoption comes intimacy with the father and an inheritance in the son. The fourth thing is we... We as believers have a new hope. We have a new hope. Verses 18 through 25. Yes, there will be pain and suffering and circumstances. But there is a bright future for all of us. In God's glory. The fifth thing is we have a new prayer partner. I'm so glad to have a new prayer partner called our helper, the Holy Spirit, verses 26 through 27. The Holy Spirit prays inside of us sometimes when we're groaning and, and we don't even know what to say and we're so brokenhearted and so broken down. We don't know what to say and how to say it. We understand that the Holy Spirit comes along and he prays for us and he brings us into harmony with God and God's will. The sixth thing, sixth thing, we have a new confidence, verse 28. The confidence that God is causing all things to work according to his purposes. Then number seven, we have a new destiny. We have a new destiny, verses 29 through 30. I, I think about this and it says that our new destiny includes God's express gold. To make us like Jesus the plan to make us like Jesus. We are foreknown and we are predestined and we are called by the Father and we are justified and we will and we're glorified in Jesus. You know, as we look at these things, and Teresa last week done an awesome job preaching and talking about this very subject. You know, God has a plan for all of our lives, and and you know, one reason we need to look more deeply into things that's going on in our society that she brought up three different places in scriptures and there's even more where even in the mother's womb God was dealing with and preparing that Very, uh, That child before it was born, Jeremiah was called and chosen in his mother's womb. John the Baptist, Jesus, God has a plan for your life before you were ever born. We need to remember that, that God's got a plan and a destiny for all of us. And this is saying he has a new destiny for your life. He has a new place for your life. Paul has given us a summary of our future, what our future looks like. He's given us steps towards that future, and now he's outlining our security, and he's telling us that all attempts at accusations and condemnation will fail in our life. We live, we do know we live in a fragile world, and um, I want to just read through these verses of Scripture right here at the beginning, and I want to read through this Romans 31, he says, when then sh- what then shall we say in response to all these things, to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along uh, with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who will condemn? No one. Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God, and also intercedes for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble, or hardship, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written... For your sake we are faced death all day long. We are considered as sheep before the slaughter. Know in all things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither present nor future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Can you say amen? Amen. Amen. So he's telling us that any attempts and all attempts of accusation about condemnation against us will fail. We started off with there is now no condemnation. And we will end today with there is no separation. God will do. He will finish what he started. We all realize and it's made even more prevalent every day in our life that we live in a fragile world. We can be disappointed. Have you ever made a promise to someone and you failed to keep that promise? I have. How about you? Anybody else here? Be Confession Sunday. This will be easier for you. Has anyone ever made a promise to you and failed to keep that promise? We live in a fragile world. In Romans 8, we learn that God will keep his promises to the believer. But see, with the world that we live in, and there's not a whole lot to trust in or believe in, when you've, when, in this fragile world, you've been disappointed more times than, than not, we sometimes wonder. And Paul was trying to answer that question. God was trying to answer God loves us, God sent Jesus to rescue us, save us, convert us, glorify us. But what about, what about years on down from our conversion before the return or the consummation of time? We kindly wonder, will God walk out on me? Will God make promises to me and then break them? We, because we live in a world where people make promises to love, to stay, to always care? Is it possible that we sometimes say and do things that make it difficult, some might argue impossible, to go forward in our relationships? Another question, can I do something or say something or be something that will cause God to walk out or give up or abandon or abort or surrender or forsake his promises to me? Can I do something that would cause God to walk out or give up and abandon? His plan to make me like Jesus or accomplish the eventual glorification. We wonder, is there a test in life, a trial that I might face that could cause God to give up and walk out on me? Paul argues in this passage that the believer is not only predestined for glory, but he's also preserved for glory. Yeah, my mother and my grandmother, and they used to take, you know, we'd get fresh either whether it be grapes or peaches or something, strawberries. And you're eating them in season. When they're in season, there they are. They're, they're tasty. They're good. And you're like, man, I'd like to have some of these in the winter. I like to have these, you know, when you can't get them nowhere else. But there was a way that they could take those preserves and they'd cut them up and they'd do all kind of stuff to them. And they would heat them and prepare them. And then they would... Put them in, they would preserve them. I love when you get a little jar of strawberry preserves or something out of the refrigerator. yeah, the, uh, the cabinet and you turn that lid and you hear that pop. And it's fresh, almost like the day you put them in there. And they've been preserved until the day that they're going to be a, uh, eaten, you know. And it's really special because it's not the time of year that normally... But you think about back years ago before they were stores, how special that must be. And he says that not only, God, not only has God predestined us for His glory, but He's preserved us for glory. All who begin in Christ will finish in Christ. 100% of those He foreknows. 100% of those He predestines. 100% of those He sanctifies. He will glorify. Not one left behind. It's like the Marines. Not one left behind. Is there some road, though, that Paul's talking about? Is there some road? I almost call this message the gauntlet, this world, the gauntlet to God's grace. You ever heard of a gauntlet where people stand and they beat on you as you go through it? Even in football, we had a thing called the pig pen. We'd get in there and, or the bull's pin, you know, you get in there and they get in a circle and the coach would just call out names and players would come and start hitting you, you know, with your pads on. And sometimes they'd call out five names. You got people coming from every direction and you're trying to fight them all. And, you know, it it was a hardship. It was difficult. But later on in your senior years, you would be the one they dreaded seeing you coming because you'd already been there. You'd done that. You'd experienced that. You'd been made strong with all those trials. But the gauntlet of this life, the gauntlet of just making it from the time you're born until your time you die, they say it's not many days and then your life is full of troubles. It's full of tears, it's full of sorrows. We go through a gauntlet of heartache and hurt in this life. And you ask yourself, can God's grace keep me through this gauntlet, this thing called life? Is there going to be some road, some avenue, some path that the believer takes that will cause that believer to forfeit their eternal life, surrender their grace, and abandon God? Paul walked down several roads or gauntlets to look down each road, and he tells us, and he is in Thought is, every road, every gauntlet of life, it's guarded by the almighty grace of God. And so he's telling us here, and he's getting to this point in verses 31 and 32 the Lord's commitment to withhold nothing from us. He said, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? What things? Why the sum and the substance of chapters 1 through 8? All of these, everything from where he started in chapter 1, all the way through chapter... Any of these things. There's none of these things. There's none of these things that will separate us. Think back if you read chapter 1 and 2 and 3 and 4 and 5 and 6 and 7. These different things that Paul talked about. He said more specifically... Some call it the golden chain of redemption, listed in verses 28 through 30. God is causing all things to work together for good. God knew us in advance. He called us. He committed to us, making us like Jesus and will glorify us. And so Paul is saying, if God is for us, who can be against us? But you say, well, but what if God isn't for us? See, he was speaking to some people. Some in his crowd thought that God was for him. Some were most definitely assured that God was against them. Others were at different points in their walk. So Paul's going to answer this question, but but what if God isn't for us? What if God is against us? During the Civil War, a panicked soldier came to President Lincoln and said, Oh, President, I most anxiously Anxious that the Lord should be on our side. Lincoln replied, that gives me no anxiety at all. The thing I worry about is being on the Lord's side. And Lincoln was right. We never have to worry whether the Lord's on our side. We need to consider, are we on the Lord's side? The true spirit-filled Christian does not have to worry about whether he or she is on the Lord's side, God's side. The question you need to ask yourself, are you in Christ? Then God is for you. How can I be sure I'm in Christ? Well, are you walking in rebellion? Are you rebelling against Christ? and you rebelling against His church? Are you walking and living daily in sin? Are you living a persistent lifestyle of disobedience to Christ? Then how can you say you're in Christ if that's your lot If you are in Christ, though, if you are in Christ and you've believed on the Lord Jesus Christ and you you are in Christ, then you can write your name there in verse 31. What then shall Dennis say? Or you can say, what then shall I say in response to these things? If God is for Dennis or God is for me, who can be against me? Who can be against me? And you realize, when you looked in verse 26, it said, we've got the Spirit in us. We've got the Spirit praying for us. Helping us pray and moving us toward the will of God. We've got the Son at the right hand of the Father. He's making intercessory for us night and day. We've got the Father that was willing to withhold nothing from us. Even giving us His own Son. How do you know? How can you have such confidence? How can you have such assurance? Paul gives us three arguments for us to have confidence and assurance in God. Number one, God promises to withhold nothing, to supply everything we need to take us from salvation to heaven. Number two, God promises to allow nothing to condemn us. Not one thing can condemn us, according to verses 33 and 34. Number three, God promises to allow nothing to separate us from his love. Verses 35 through 37. And then he gives this, he gives the, the illustration of his argument. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him also free, freely give us all things? Paul's illustration uh, is of a great sacrifice that the father made. Of a great sacrifice that the father made. And that sacrifice was his son Jesus. He is arguing from the lesser to the greater. If God sacrificed his son while we were sinners, how much more will God give us freely all things as sons and daughters and as saints? All that He did for us to bring us and be our salvation came while we were nothing. We were enemies. We were outside of God's will. We were sinners, and He did all that for us. What indeed was God willing to sacrifice to ensure your salvation? We have often referred to the heart-wrenching story in the Bible of Isaac in Genesis 22. In that heart-wrenching story, we find this man named Abraham. Who's called of God. The first thing that Abraham's asked to do. And I'm going to tell you. If you serve God. There will be some sacrifices required of you. And and, and in this passage. God called Abraham and said. I want you to leave your father's house. And I want you to go out to a land. To a city that's not yet been built. And he saw a lot more sand. Before he saw any sidewalks. And Abraham. The first thing he had to do. Is leave his daddy. You know, his daddy was like the prodigal son leaving his daddy. He was leaving behind the inheritance. He was leaving behind the farm. He was leaving behind the assurance of being at his daddy's house, his farm. But Abraham went ahead. And as becoming the God of the the father of faith, Abraham left his father. And Abraham followed Jesus, not knowing where he was going. Not knowing what land he was going to. And Abraham, one of the high points is when he was asked later on to sacrifice now. You think sacrificing your family farm, your house, your father. But now he was being asked to sacrifice his son. Most of, most of us cringe at Genesis 22. It seems unfathomable. But most of us, we think about it, we read. And he took his son and they started walking up the mountain. And by the way, that mountain is the same mountain that was later called Mount Calvary. He goes and he's walking up there and his son, he's he's pretty old. He's probably physically able to take Abraham if he wanted to. And he's helping and on his shoulders, he's carrying a a great amount of wood. Because they're going up to the top of the mountain to make a sacrifice. Much like Jesus had a pile of wood on his shoulder called a cross. But here, Isaac is carrying this wood. They're going to the top of the mountain. And Isaac starts thinking, okay, uh, we, we've got stuff for fire. We've, we've got wood. But where's the sacrifice? And Abraham said, son, the Father will provide. God will provide. Don't worry about it. And so he's going up to the top of the mountain. And they build the altar. And they get ready. And they lay Isaac on the altar. And, you know, he had to be willing to go. He had to be willing to lay there because he could have took Abraham at his age. And Abraham takes and brings the knife back and he's fixing to plunge it through his son's heart because he knew that if that were to happen, God would raise him up anyway. He said, We will come back down the mountain, that God will provide, God will make it okay. But it must have been heart wrenching to even think of doing that. And having to follow God to that degree. But when he's about to bring the knife down. There was a voice of an angel. Said lay not thy hand upon this lad. The angel told Abraham. Neither do thou anything unto him. For now I know that you fear God. Seeing thou has not withheld thy son. Thine only son. Genesis 22 and 12. When the Hebrew word there. That's the word Withheld. In the Greek Septuagint is the same word that is used there in verse 32 of Romans 8. He told Abraham, Abraham did not spare Isaac. It's the same word. And God did not spare Jesus. Paul may be drawing deliberate parallels. What would Abraham hold back from God? If he's willing to sacrifice his own son. God knew. If he was willing to offer his own son. That Abraham would never withhold anything from God or spare. But then we brought to Romans 8. And we find what would God hold back. What would God be willing to hold back. If he is willing to sacrifice his son. Refusing to spare his son. I think about when Jesus went into the garden that Teresa spoke about last week. And he went into the garden and he began to pray. And he began to cry and pray until his sweat become as great drops of blood. And God was hearing that prayer. And Jesus was praying, Father, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. But his father, his father had to prove That there's nothing he would withhold from his children. Finally they come and they grab Jesus and they take him and they bring him up against all kind of false accusations. They beat him until his face is unrecognizable. They pull the very hairs of his beard out. They take and they take a crown of thorns with about three inch length thorns go down into the brow. They say that you couldn't even recognize him. He was beat so bad. They threw a cross upon his shoulder. They made him take it to the top of the hill. They spit on him. They made fun of him. They cursed him. Finally, they drove spikes into his wrists and into his feet. They brought him up before everyone. They even chose Nicodem, they even chose Barabbas over Jesus. And the father's sitting there looking down from heaven watching this. And then finally he gets to those words. They stick a spear in his side. He cries out, I thirst, I thirst, I thirst. And they give him vinegar and he spits it out. The father watches all of that. And finally, he gets to those dreadful words. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Some of you in this building right here today feel like you've been forsaken by God. Why hast thou forsaken me? And the Father stands by. And then Jesus gets to those final words. It is finished. And Jesus, God turns his face. As his dear son dies. Abraham was willing to offer his son, but God the Father did offer his son. So Paul comes back to this argument and he says, What will God ever withhold from you to bring you into the very nature and the very likeness of Jesus Christ? What will he not do for you if he was willing to offer his own son for you while you were sinners? Pretty strong argument if you ask me. I heard this story. I've heard it a bunch of different ways about this chicken and this pig was walking along. They saw this sign at this church said, we're doing a special project to help the poor. The chicken looked over to the pig and said, hey. Hey. You know, I'll give some eggs, you give some ham, and we'll feed the poor. The hog replied, that's easy for you to say. For you to offer some eggs, all you got to do is give a little contribution. But for me to give some ham, it's a total commitment. I'm telling you, God's going to call on you for more than a contribution. He's going to call on you for total commitment. And God was totally committed to us. I love the story of John Phillips. tells the story of a Roman man who had a son who broke his heart. And then he had a slave who commanded his admiration. He decided on his deathbed to disinherit his son. And leave everything to his slave, Marcellus. He drew up the papers and called his son to tell him what he had done. The father said... I have decided everything that I have. I'm going to leave to my slave, Marcellus, he said. However, you may choose one item from my estate for yourself. So his son says, I choose Marcellus. Because Marcellus had everything. Folks, when... Mankind was put upon this earth and they sinned against Almighty God, following the devil. We become disinherited. We become, this world becomes Satan's world. We become disinherited. We become sinners that we could do absolutely, positively nothing about. But one day, our great Father and our great God, He comes and He sends His Son, Jesus Christ, to come and die on the cross. And now everything that the Father has, everything in heaven, everything on earth, everything below the earth, everything that ever was and ever will be has been put in Jesus' name. And I don't know about you. If you could have one thing, what would it be? Your answer should be, I'll take Jesus. For in Jesus is everything that we could ever want, anything we could ever dream, everything that we could ever hope for is in Jesus. And just like that, you can be re-inherited. You can have your treasures, you can have eternal life, you can live forever. And so the Lord's contract to, the Lord's contract to dismiss all con- condemnation toward us. He made a contract. To dismiss all condemnation for us through Jesus Christ, verse thirty-three. He says, "Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? Who shall bring any charge against those who God has chosen? It is God who justifies. A charge is an accusation. It, It is a. It's like an impeachment. Thank God, Christ." is our lawyer and God is our judge. If we are in Christ, we have nothing at all to worry about. What is the most what is the worst charge anybody can bring against you? What is the worst accusation that can be leveled against you? Hypocrisy, duplicity, inconsistency that you don't deserve to be saved? Justified means declared righteous in Christ. Who are God's elect? God's chosen, God's elect, God's chosen are those that are chosen in Christ Jesus and accepted in Christ Jesus. Who might bring charges against you? If you look over the Bible, you'll find in Zechariah 3 and 1 through 7 that Satan may bring charges against you because he's the accuser of the brethren. He accuses us day and night before the throne of God. Your wife may bring accusations against you. Your husband may bring accusations against you. The church that you have tended for many years may come against you and bring accusations against you. And what do you have to say? Do they bring, maybe they could bring a constant parade of your deepest failures and sin and puts it out there. And what of the pain or the doubt or the failure, the constant nagging of unbelief. You say, you know, you're in big trouble. Yeah, you are in big trouble if they are on the basis of your justification. But this passage says that we will never be justified by our justification but only by God it's God and God only that can justify us just like we had never been a sinner if you're saved by the absence of accusation if you're saved by the absence of or the presence of a clear conscience if you're saved by the absence or the presence of good deeds or or the absence or the presence of material prosperity, or the keeping or the breaking of the law, the rules. If you can justify yourself, or if you can condemn yourself, then how are we to interpret the meaning or the phrase, it is God who justifies if God can justify, then God also cannot justify. It is God who justifies, and it is God who condemns. On what basis does God justify? What is the basis on our just as if we'd never sinned? It's based on Jesus Christ. And we find John 3, 9, 20 through 21. And by this we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. Even if our hearts condemn us. You know, sometimes our heart condemns us. We get up and we go, yeah, I'm not a very good Christian. I'm a sorry husband. I'm a sorry father. I'm a sorry no good for nothing. I don't know why anybody would love me. I don't know why God would love me. Your heart condemns you. But even if your heart, for if your heart condemns you, God is greater than your heart. And knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence towards God. But I'm telling you, our confidence should not be based on our heart. Our confidence should be based on the fact that God, God alone justifies us. Robert Kent Hughes said it this way, If accusations are brought against us, we need not fear. For the charges are silenced by the upraised, pierced hands of our intercessor. If we are to be condemned... It has to be over Christ's dead body. I like that, you know, I died for all of them. And you going to come and condemn them? And you're going to condemn yourself? And Jesus stands and goes over my dead body. You ever heard people say that? I'm going to come and I'm going to attack your family. Some man stands up, if he's a real man, over my dead body. Will you ever touch my children? And so Jesus stands, and he goes, over my dead body are you going to take my children to hell? Over my dead body. Well, they did kill him. But in three days, he rose from the dead. So now he can say, over my dead body that has been resurrected in the power of Almighty God, you're not going to separate my children from my father. We should have some confidence in that. We should have some confidence in that. Christ dead and now resurrected body, which actually is the basis, the very basis of our salvation is his resurrection. How's that for confidence? Okay, what if God accuses me? You think, well, you know, I shouldn't be accusing myself and I shouldn't care about what everybody else is saying. But what if God accuses me? What if God condemns me? Let's think this through. Here's where Paul goes. Unless you come to Christ, you are condemned already. You know, John 3:16, the one they hold up at football games for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Verse 17 of John 3:16 says, For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Verse 18, He who believed in him is not condemned. He who does not believe in him him is already condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. So God does not condemn you. If you don't believe in God, you're already condemned. The only way to not to be condemned and ever be condemned ever, ever, ever is to be in Christ Jesus. Because if you're in Christ Jesus, you're never going to be condemned. Don't mean you're perfect. Don't mean that everything's going to go perfect in your life. We see, but if you come to Christ, why would God condemn you? Why would God condemn you if you come to Christ? For God to accuse us after saving us would mean His salvation is weak. It would mean that His salvation that He's provided is a failure. And we are, in fact, still in our sins. When God declares the believer, believing sinner righteous in Christ, the declaration never, ever changes. So he gets to verse 34 and he tells us in verse 34, who then is the one who condemns? And there's, there's one, there's two words right after that. You need to circle, put little bows, little stars around it. Who then is the one who is, who condemns? And it says no one, no one. Christ Jesus, it's Christ Jesus who died. More than that, who raised to life. It is that he's at the right hand of God and he's praying or making intercessory for us. Do we know this to be a fact? Yes, because they brought a woman caught in the act of adultery. I shared that, the, I think my first Sunday on Romans 8. They brought a woman in, caught in adultery. She did do it. She was caught. There was, this is not a trial to decide if she did it or not or whether she's an adulterer or not or a sinner or not. She was all of that. And so they brought to Jesus. These people come with their rocks. They said the law says that we can stone her for what she's done. And Jesus said, yeah, that's right. That's what the law says. And Jesus said, well, here's what I want you to do. All you that has no sin in your life, you go ahead and start stoning her. And they said that they begin to drop their stones from the oldest to the younger. I told you that. And she looked up, and he said, where are your accusers? And she looks around, and she says, I have none. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. What a beautiful passage of Scripture. See, the only one in the crowd that had the right to condemn her was the one that said he wasn't going to condemn her. I never want to be on the devil's side. I don't want to be on the condemning side. See, if you've never sinned, go knock yourself out condemning people, putting people down. But if you've ever sinned, you need to hold back on your judging and your condemning. And so he asks the question then, who, who condemns? And he says, no one. And so he tells in verse 35 then, who shall separate us from this love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword as it is written? For your sake, we face death all day long. and We are considered as sheep before the slaughter. So the question begs another question. Does Christ really love us that much? Paul answers the question. But God, verses 5, 8 through 9. But God demonstrated his love toward us. That while we were still sinners, Christ dies for us. Much more than having now been justified... That's past tense, by his own blood, we shall be saved from the wrath through him. Can God fail us? I guess we're wanting to know. Can God fail us? No. Can we fail God then? Maybe if God cannot fail us, then then if we see that God can never fail us and his opinion or his love for us will never change, then I guess the next reasonable then then maybe then we could fail God. Can can we fail God? Is there some trial that we might go through? Is there some test, some circumstance, some failure, some personal failure, or, or mental or emotional thing? Is there anything like that in this this? World, this gauntlet of this world that could separate us from the love of God. Paul offers some suggestions. He said, tribulations or distress or persecutions or famine or nakedness, world, uh, peril or sword. Look at the translation of distress. The word distress in, in, in the Greek language is stenos, meaning narrow. It's a narrow place. You ever been in a tight place? And the, the other word there, kora, means space, tight space, narrow place. You ever been up against a rock in a hard place? You ever been in a, in a bind? You ever been against a, uh, you've just been in and stressed out because you just don't know which way to turn and you don't have no wiggle room? You ever been there? We might think, About that for all of you today that's in a tight squeeze we have an expression in a bind the word persecute means to follow hard after like a hot pursuit you feel like everybody's after you they're coming after you and after all it's not paranoia if they really are coming after you the word famine means absence of food nakedness means no clothing indecency on parade in Paul's situation, it was just inadequate clothing, and it was cold. The word peril, peril means risk or danger. We may not have the same perils that Paul faced, but we face spiritual perils, and we face all kind of risk in life. Paul began to offer up a laundry list of... And they're not just a laundry list. Paul is offering up an autobiography of circumstances for Paul... He's a great and deep thinker, and he's a weighty theologian. But Paul is right now speaking as a human being who has come to the grips with all these perils and danger. In other words, Paul said, I do not speak as one that's had it easy. I've been shipwrecked. I've got scars all over my body five times if I've taken 39 stripes I've been stoned. I've been shipwrecked three times. I've been let down out of cities because people were trying to kill me. I've been spit on and beat on. I've been through hell. I've been through the gauntlet of life. And Paul is saying if anybody's qualified to talk about this, it ought to be me. You know what I've been through. And here's the thing. He said, for your sake we are killed all the day long. Did you know that? Is he's quoting a passage in Psalms 44 and 22. He's reminding the Roman readers that are possibly going to read this. That being a Christian is not a rose garden. It's not an easy way. For Christians face heartache and Christians face pain and trial and sorrow. There's nothing new Nothing new to this real saint of God. God doesn't shelter his people from hardships. Somebody told you that as a preacher somewhere, you need, to, you need to look for yourself. God knows that our difficulties become, he knows we're going to have difficulty, but he knows our difficulties are going to become opportunities for spiritual growth and moving us one step closer to being like Christ. For Romans 8 and 28 said all things, all things, the difficult things, the trial things, the testing times. All things work together for the good of those that love the Lord who called according to his purpose. God permits trials for the good and for his glory. We endure trials for his sake. Will God abandon us or forsake us because we don't do too good going through a trial? Or we curse God during a suffering or a hardship. Which he has allowed for our good and his glory. No, he won't. It has been my experience that with pain and hardship and sorrow. We will be bitter sometimes. But eventually we'll be made better. We will be pressed in upon and closed in on. And sometimes we'll feel like we're falling apart. But. But. For the one who finds shelter in Christ Jesus there is a tangible sense of God's presence even in those hard times because God is close to the brokenhearted. The power of his Holy Spirit will be felt. For the person who says God must not love me look at all the pain I'm going through look at all the sorrow the misery the persecution the oppression the opposition do not see themselves in Christ? Verse 37, No, in all things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am convinced neither death nor life nor angels nor demons nor things present nor future nor powers neither height nor depth nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You get that? The original language is full of superlatives, meaning that you are super conquerors. You are super in your victory. You are super overcomers. All those sufferings, all those pains, all those hardships God has given to us, we can experience the joy of being super victorious. When Christendom was brought before the Roman emperor, the emperor threatened him with the banishment if he remained a Christian. But Christendom replied, thou canst not banish me from this world. This world is my father's house. He said, well, I'll slay you then, said the emperor. Nay, thou canst not, said the noble champion of faith, for my life is hid in Christ and God. I will take away your treasures then. Nay, thou canst not take away my treasures, for my treasures are in heaven, and my heart is there too. But I will drive thee away from man, and thou shalt have no friends left. Nay, thou canst not uh, take away my friends. You, you see, my, my friend is in heaven, from whom thou canst not separate me. I defy thee, for there is nothing that thou canst do to hurt me. That's a super overcomer. They know who they are in Christ. They know who they are. Paul is ending by saying, I stand convinced. I am certain. But, you know, I, I'm certain. I am persuaded. Jesus Christ loves us. But some of you may be unpersuaded today that Christ loves you and gives you victory. But I want to tell you this. Look at this. God will, God. He said, this... Not, he's not going to let one promise. There, there's nothing going to destroy you. There's nothing that's going to, no one gets left behind in God's plan. God is not going to give up on you. Paul is persuaded that death are the greatest enemy. Of, you know, Death seems to be the greatest enemy of all. We do everything to fear death. Our greatest fear could not separate us from the love of God. Death, cold, corrupting power cannot steal, steal away the love of God from you. You cannot, it cannot block, steal, vanish God's love. No, nor life. There's a lot of rough things in life. Hardship in life. What about insanity in life? What about a broken heart in life? What about failed marriage in life? What about death of a loved one or financial crisis or pain? Or or some, is there some kind of wedge that could be built and pry me away from God's love? What about suffering or abuse or ignorance? What about even bad theology? You do remember that Paul started out with some really bad theology. But God loved him right through it. And pretty soon he became one of the greatest theologians of the New Testament. Paul had a lot of truth to stand on. Paul visits in supernatural realms Paul visits the dead Paul visits the living Paul visits the supernatural he says not even principalities or benevolent or or human or, or divine nor powers government churches organization nor things presence what is the real real world he said nor things to come what about things to come? What about things in the future? He's saying nothing can separate us from God. There is no condemnation. There's no obligation. There's no frustration. And most of all, there is no separation. If God is for us, who can be against us? Who can be against us? I'd like for the team to come prepare this last song. Paul believed this. Peter believed this. The apostles believed this. First Peter 1, 3 and 5 said, Blessed be the God and Father of, of the Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to his abundant mercy, has begotten us again to the living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is incorruptible and undefiled and does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the how are we kept by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. And in first John 512 13, he who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. These things I have written that you uh, to do to you who believe in His name, the Son of God, that you might know that you might know that you have eternal life, that you may continue to believe in the Lord Jesus. How many know that you know that you know you have eternal life? Not going to be, you have it. You know, you know, you know that you're sanctified and you're justified. You're being sanctified. John 5 and 24 says, Most assuredly I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Where can we find the love of God? We find it, as he tells us in verse 39. We find the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I got here this morning and they were singing this song. Come on out, guys. They were singing this song that they're fixing to sing. They sung earlier. And uh, I mean, God really being able to deal with my heart. Because you could go, well, pastor, you don't know what I've been through. And I'll give you that. I don't know what you go through. I don't have an autobiography. A laundry list of every... I've been through some things. But the list of things... My list is not like Paul. But as I was singing that, I begin to just envision the people in our congregation. And I realize that you are the living testimonies of the grace of God. And so if you would participate in the areas that I lack in... Some of these apply to me, but there's some in you in here that's been through great hardship. How many of you in here has ever been through the loss of a spouse? Anybody in here? I'd like for you to stand if you will. Here, stand. Anybody else been stand? Lost a spouse. Lost a spouse. So stay standing if you don't mind. But you know what? They're here today and they're standing. How many's ever been through a divorce? Raise your hand. Wasn't easy. Still probably not easy. Well, you stand. But you're still here. You're still here. So shall divorce separate us? Shall the loss of a spouse separate us? Some of you, probably one of the most difficult things I can imagine is the loss of a child. Is there anybody in here that's having a loss of a child? Some of these are already standing. I can't imagine that, guys. But you're still here. So, no, it can't separate you from the love of Christ. Some of you have had addicted loved ones that was difficult to deal with. And they may still be addicted. And you still love them. And you're still working with them. And you still care about them. If that's your lot in life, will you stand? Anymore? You know what it means? Not even addiction can separate you from the love of Christ. Some of you have lost your parents. They went. Your mother, your father. Lost your parents. The one you could go to. You could always talk to. If you've lost a parent. I want you to lift your hand. Or stand. But you're here today. Some of you have been financially ruined at one time or another. Probably all of us have at one time or another. But you're still here. Amen. What does this say? What does this say then? What does this say then? How many sinned before? You just sinned and messed up big time. Big, big, big time. Stand up. Not even sin can separate us from the love of God. How many of you believed the wrong thing at one time or another? You you believed a bunch of garbage and you believed it for a long time. Raise your hand. Not even bad theology can keep you away from the love of God. He'll bring you around somehow, some way, someday. This is our victory song they're fixing to sing. I want you to sing it with all your heart and make the declaration that's in this song. If I didn't call out whatever you're going through, you're going through it anyway. and you know it. And it's real, and it hurts. but I'm going to tell you, everybody may turn on you, but God will never turn on you, and He will never fail. I love that song your love never fails, it never gives up, it never runs out on me. Say that together. God's love never fails. It never gives up. It never runs out on me. God's love never fails. It never gives up. It never runs out on me.